everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. Let's treat the buffalo like we treat the elk and all other wildlife. I mean, the one thing about Yellowstone, it's surrounded by Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. Three states that have some of the biggest national forests, public lands, and, and the ability to let these buffalo out and have a little breathing room. And so... You know, we just want them to have the same rights as all our other wildlife and bring bring the buffalo back to the people. Today on American Indian Airwaves, protecting the buffalo relations, we'll speak with the co-founder of the Buffalo Field Campaign, an organization that has worked tirelessly over the decades to protect the buffalo relations and how the Yellowstone National Park, America's first national park, could implement a new bison management program that could result in the killing of more buffalo relations. That and indigenous education, a new pipeline program from public schools to college in Los Angeles, California. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Today on American Indian Airwaves, we start the show by going to Montana as we speak with the co-founder of the Buffalo Field Campaign, Mike Meese. The Buffalo Field Campaign has been at the forefront of protecting the last free-roaming herd of bison relatives in the lower 48 states and promoting and advocating for the increase of the bison habitat and populations. We speak with Mike Meese and we start the interview about what's transpiring in the state of Montana as the cattle industry is strategically working to exterminate some of the last remaining genetically pure bison and how the Yellowstone National Park in its 150 year anniversary is considering implementing a new bison management program that could also result in the rapid decline of some of the last remaining genetically pure buffalo relations. And now Marcus Lopez, executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, and myself speaking with Mike Meese, co-founder of the Buffalo Field Campaign on protecting the buffalo relations. Well, basically, it's the um, cattle industry of the state of Montana who has exerted a zero-tolerance policy on our last genetically pure, wild, free-ranging buffalo we have in the world that are located in the vicinity of Yellowstone National Park. And so when they migrate out of the park or even just to the border, they're either captured um, and shipped to slaughter or 
turned into a quarantine project, which is essentially just domestication of these animals, or they're shot at the border. And basically, this operation, which is funded by our taxpayer dollars, um, kills anywhere from one-fifth of the entire herd to one-quarter of the entire herd annually. And um, this is due to the myth um, that they would spread brucellosis, a disease that they, when they brought the cattle over here from Europe, gave to all our wildlife. And um, they've never transmitted it, yet the elk have it and continue to transmit it and take it further and further out of the ecosystem. Um, and it's just a, a long, never-ending prejudice that, you know, the Western culture is had against buffalo and, and Native Americans, one and the same. Yes, yes. M- Mike, why don't you tell us about the anniversary you have now, your, uh, what is it, 21st anniversary of Buffalo Film cam- Campaign. Tell us who started it and, um, and educate the public about that, please. Well, I mean, not bragging about it. I, I had the, the um, idea when we started this, we weren't going to last more than five years, but this um, this June we're going to be celebrating our 25th year in the field um, fighting for the buffalo, and I had the honor of starting this organization with Rosalie Little Thunder, who is a traditional Lakota elder who unfortunately passed about eight years ago now, and... Um, but she was our guiding force, and currently we're under the management of um, our executive director is a gentleman named James Halt, who is a Ness Purse brother. So um, we we take the Native relationship very serious in, in every step and every guidance that we do to hopefully bring these buffalo some lifelong protection. What you share to the public, if you could, Mike, some of your memories about Rosalie, I knew her, and she was a dear soul. Uh, what are some of the things that, that um, you want to share to the public, uh, the remembrance of Rosalie? Well, I think one of the most beautiful memories I have with her, um, we were, um, we had just done a prayer ceremony with Orville Looking Horse um, at the capture facility, and this was back in 1997. And um, we heard shots during the ceremony, and I kind of knew what they were because I've been covering this issue for years. And we went to investigate what the shots were. And less than a mile and a half away from where the ceremony was, the Montana Department of Livestock had gunned down 12 buffalo. And we were standing out there, and they were on this land that is owned by this, they call themselves Church Universal and Triumphant, this religious group. And... um Rosalie and all the Lakota um, folks that were there that day were asking, hey, can we go say a prayer for the, for our relatives that you just killed? And we were just having this ceremony. And Rosalie was a very traditional woman. You know, every time she came anywhere, she always was traveling with one of her grandkids. And um, this was no, no exception. And the, the grandkid that was with her that particular day was little Timmy, who was 10 years old. And he all of a sudden grabbed his grandma's shirt, and he's tugging on it. He says, hey, Grandma, how old do you have to be to get arrested? And that five minutes minutes later, Rosalie went out to say a prayer and got arrested. So I'll never forget that story, that's for sure. (laughs) 
I know you miss Rosalie tremendously. Oh, and man, she was um, just a, a gift. Yes, I, I, and she every time she came in one meetings and whatnot, she always not only brought her culture, but she brought her her beadwork, and um, it was uh, noted that her beadwork and her protest go hand in hand with the prayer. So that was <laughs> to- totally, totally awesome. And congratulations on on the sad note of, of 21 years of this, and on the upside of it, you're still in existence. Why don't you share with us, with the listeners, the Yellowstone release long-term plan that you have uh, uh, just recently asked for public comment, and what is what is the development of that? Well, the the comment period just ended on the 28th of February, so they're evaluating all the comments they get, and they haven't released anything quite yet. But, you know, our philosophy is pretty simple. Let's treat the buffalo like we treat the elk and all other wildlife. I mean, the one thing about Yellowstone, it's surrounded by Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, three states that have some of the biggest national forests, public lands, and and the ability to let these buffalo out and have a little breathing room. And so, you know, we just want them to have the same rights as all our other wildlife and bring bring the buffalo back to the people, you know. And I know your cultures know about this, but ours sure need some education. Um, you know, the buffalo are the regenerators of the land. They don't stay and overgraze in an area. They come through an area and they eat the grasses and they spill the seeds. Then their hoofs are cleft, and so when they walk, they till the soil. And then the magic fertilizer out the back end, and you have perfect regeneration process. And, you know, we'll see the same herd of buffalo come through the same area year after year, but they don't stay and overgraze that area. They just walk through so they know they're replanting and taking care of the earth. And, you know, just like... In the buffalo world, we're all equal. They have leaders, but their leaders are tasked with the survival of the whole herd because in the buffalo world, everyone's equal. All buffalo are the same, and, you know, they... I think of, you know, in the winters when they're they're fighting through six feet of snow to migrate to, from one area to another, and they walk in a straight line, and... um and basically, when they walk in the straight line, you know, they, they're plowing through this five, six feet of snow. And when the head buffalo, he or she gets tired, they step to the left and let the whole procession go by. And then they jump in at the end where all the work is done. And so the whole herd shares the burden of survival. And that's what I think humanity could learn a lot of lessons from, you know, of understanding that all our two-leggeds are, are from the same people, you know, that we got to unite and work together and treat each all, each other with all the same respect we deserve or, or expect ourselves. And so I just think these buffalo are trying to teach us things we in, in this Western culture have, have forgotten. Now the executive director James Holt, the is um, he talked about this uh, the legal b- battle and the policy work and creating a positive change on the Buffalo Trail from the um, and they had some really interesting news and positive news about the legal victory to- uh, versus um, challenging U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Talk about that for us. Well. Um, 
Tom, in November of 2014, we filed for an endangered species listing for the Yellowstone buffalo herd. And ironically, to get an animal listed as an endangered species, as, as in they need help because they're almost going to go extinct, the minimum process is eight years. And, of course, we're coming into our eight years now. And so... We've been going through, you know, these battles in courts, and we've won some, and then we've had to appeal others. And um, this latest round, essentially, they're trying to say that because of their management plan that there's only one herd there now because they're meshed together. But the truth of the reality is there's two separate herds inside Yellowstone. There's the original herd, which is from the Hayden Valley, and then there's the northern herd, which was kind of transplanted there by some visionaries. Um, for instance, Mickey Pablo from the um, Salish and Kootenai lands, they, he donated buffalo that were pure um, all calves. And then uh, this guy Allard from the Texas Allard herd donated two more. And so they started another little herd up there. And so they're, you know, to increase genetics, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, they we won because they they said that they they said that they are recognizing that there are two separate herds, and that's going to have to change their whole management pl- practices and start to get them some habitat outside of the park, which we're all fighting for. Now, Mike, you you talked about uh, in some of your communication with your newsletter. Um, this notion, what you just talked about, this uh, positive change and about the Buffalo, that the current bison management priorities are failing the public trust. I think that's important to realize, but are seemingly balking at their treaty obligations without scientific merit. And then later on you talked about the um, science-based population objectives. Talk about that uh, for us, especially for the people who don't really know Southern California, the rest of the people that listen to this on the Internet, don't really know what that means. So talk about that for a second. Well, basically, you know, they they set a, a limit of what they refer to as the carrying capacity of Yellowstone National Park, meaning how many buffalo they can have. Um, the The... Their science, or the management plan, was based on 5,000 is more than enough, and that they could actually bring the herd down to 3,500 if they wanted to. Well, most science and, and the other, you know, carrying capacity estimates that I've heard were anywhere from six to 10,000. And just recently, with the new um, management plan reconstruction, there was an alternative in there that talked about the carrying capacity being all the way up to 8,000, allowing for more buffalo to exist inside the park. So, You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Mike Meese, co-founder of the Buffalo Field Campaign on Protecting the Buffalo Relations, one of the last remaining genetically pure buffalo herds in the lower 48 states. And now back to the interview. That's mainly what we're talking about. But then if you, you know, step back and how you manage animals and and what their previous populations were, which they estimate on continent North America were anywhere between 30 to 60 million buffalo, and now we have them down to less than four or 5,000, I mean, that's less than a point point of a percent, you know, of their original habitat. 
and with that our population and with that you know all the habitat they now exist on less than one percent of the population of their previous habitat that they used to be on and so you know we're just trying to bring them back gradually but not do it in a incubation type fashion which is quarantine where they kill you know the only ones that get to stay alive are the ones that test positive so they're segregating all the family units then they can never, they have to live behind fences, get hay fed, and even when they graduate, they as long as they're in the state of Montana, they always have to live the rest of their lives behind fences. Well, the gift of these buffalo is that ancestral knowledge of how to take care of the land, how to migrate, how to live off the foods that exist in front of you and nurture them and bring them back to life. And so, you know, we don't feel that domestication is, is we have plenty of beefalo in the United States. They're in every state in the United States and they're, you know, everywhere. And But these unique purebred, pure buffalo that aren't mixed with the cattle bovine gene, these are the true buffalo and the ones that we need to bring back to the land to restore the for future generations and for you know, they have the ability to retill the soil and revegetate it, hence creating more carbon fiber, and, and they have a potential of really, bring, you know, helping us solve part of this climate crisis as well. Mike, I was curious, uh, you know, last year when Marcus and I interviewed Stephanie um, there in the office, um, you know, we were, we were talking as well about the number of buffalo relatives whose lives have been taken in just in up to March of 2021. And I was wondering, in coming back and talking about, um, you know, the Yellowstone National Park uh, accepting, you know, public uh, scoping comments on a new bison management plan and the environmental impact statement affecting the park in the states, of Montana, Idaho, and, and Wyoming. Update us on what's happened so far this year, and then talk about some of these proposals um, to for a new, if you will, should one be implemented, a new bison management plan. Well, so far this year, we've had an extremely tame winter, mm-hmm. and the fact that the buffalo now know when they come out of the park they're going to be hunted Mm -hmm. so to date two buffalo have been shot over here in the western range in west yellowstone where we are two buffalo have been shot in the gardner region which is the northern part and to date they have captured 28 buffalo in the capture facility and have shipped all but 11 of those or 12 of those to slaughter Mm -hmm. um and the rest will be kept for the quarantine project and Basically, there's four orphans that are hanging out around the um, capture facility because obviously their parents are in there, or their moms at least are, Mm -hmm. and um, the rest of the the herd don't seem to be coming out, and the last couple days we've been having really tropical weather and losing a lot of snow quickly, so um, winter's going away quick. And as far as the management plan, like I told you, they just finished um, with their comment period on the 28th, and their alternatives all still um, ask for capture, quarantine, slaughter, and really have no 
no desire to let the buffalo out of the park. And and they did uh, try and up the carrying capacity to 8,000, but the tolerance for them leaving the park is still facing the burden of the state of Montana, which is zero tolerance. As a matter of fact, in the state of Montana, buffalo don't have rights as being even wildlife. They fall under the heading of what they call an animal in need of disease control. And so... That's how they have no rights in the state. So we're more or less saying, look, we want the buffalo to be treated like all other wildlife, to be able to wander on our national forests, our public lands. Also, this concurs with the um, treaty hunts because they can only hunt on what what's referred to as unclaimed land, which is national forests, public lands, state lands. But the park doesn't fall under that jurisdiction. So... You know, working with the treaty hunts and the treaty hunters, we're we're working together to try and broaden, you know, the acceptance of buffalo coming back out onto the landscape. Mike, why don't you talk to us about the tribal opposition to the plan? You mentioned that earlier in your communication. What does that look like? Well, I mean, here's your perfect example, right? You have right now, I believe the Yakima are sitting at the border. We have Nez Perce out there, Shoshone, Bannock. Um, I'm not sure if there's other tribes that are out there. And the only buffalo that were coming out to lands that they were allowed to um, hunt on were captured by the Park Service, right? Right in front of them when they're en route because as the migration takes place, they come by the capture facility a mile and a half before they come to the actual border of Yellowstone Park. So these animals never got a chance to walk out of the park and and even be seen by the hunters. And so, of course, the hunters are pissed. They travel 10 to 12 hours. They're renting hotel rooms. They're, you know, it's pretty big expense for them to come out here. And, And the park, you know, takes care of themselves first in this weird way. And, you know, of course, that creates internal conflict. And, you know, like the Nez Perce at all the interagency bison management meetings say, always say, we want ten to 20,000 buffalo minimum back out on the landscape. And so they're fighting for the rights of the buffalo to leave the park, and the management plan is directed at making sure the park, or they never do leave the park. So I think that's probably one of the main squabbles. We're speaking with um, Stephanie. I think you're uh, alluding to this um, in your response to the previous questions. Um, uh, Stephanie, when we were talking to Stephanie, we were talking about Montana State Legislature um, had introduced HB 318 and 302, and 318 would reclassify the original buffalo, right, from wild uh, and feral to domesticated. And I was wondering if you could... Give us an update on that and what that means, as well as HB 302 usurps Montana state constitutional power and places it into the local county board operating favorably for hunters and ranchers, killing those original Buffalo relations. Well, unfortunately, both of those did pass. um, But as far as our state goes, our state is is very very we'll just say tilted towards the ranching mentality and that culture um 
we we we're down to one Democrat period, and all of our representatives in our state legislation is ridiculously skewed, and so we've for years not been able to achieve much in the state of Montana, and that's why we fight on a more national level, working for an endangered species listing. Um, James Halt's been doing some work with Cory Booker mm. out in Washington D.C., and we're trying to get Deb Holland, you know, a little more involved and. At this point, you know, working within our state, and thank God our state government only meets every other year, so they're not in session this year to create any more bad news for the buffalo. But, um, yeah, it's it's sad what, what they pass and what they get away with in the state. But, you know, these are, the, the, the reality of the whole situation is these aren't Montana's buffalo. Right. This is a unique herd that's one of a kind, and they... You know, they don't belong to any of us, but they belong to have the right to come back out into the country that they've, their their native ancestors to. And, you know, we, we can't let, I mean, I know you guys hear it all the time, but what disgusts me, I think, more than anything is, is how we pay such great heed and reverence to these fourth and fifth generation Montana ranchers and they've got all the knowledge because my grandpappy did this but they don't ever have any respect or reverences for you guys and your you know time immortal relationship to this land this place this you know and and the wisdom that comes with this you know how you have just as many people almost as we do, and yet this place was living in harmony because it was an earth-based religion that that cared about everything, and humans weren't the only thing that mattered in the big circle of life. And, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're stuck in the mentality, especially in the state of Montana, where the cowboy is king and they have all the knowledge and you know it's and then you look at their history and it's like in the state of Montana the cattle industry is a is pretty much a welfare project mm-hmm. they bring in as much in government subsidies as they do in their in their own revenue and so they're at best a break even business but they wouldn't be without all of us taxpayers paying their way through life I think that's a so interesting point you made, uh, Mike, uh, in which, just like the redwood and forest and the other other timber out there that they look at, I think that Larry mentioned it last time around, is that they tend to, um, I don't like to use the word, but I need to use the word, is that commodify a particular object or use it as a product in order so they can um, uh, um, objectify it and not look at it as, like what you said, a lot of indigenous culture looks at it in the sense of just like a river trees or the salmon or 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 other you know, other relatives, and that is in other people like what we say, but yet that the buffalo means much more than just a or a animal a a species a um object in which we can when we go through. Um, when we go through the national park, we can say, "Oh, this is how it once was," or, 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 or "Oh my goodness, you know, these buffalo are bigger than I, you know, bigger than that," or whatever people think in the tourist industry, which is another element of this. But that, that this this um, notion of um, this commodification of of animals and 
and the sports industry and the, and the cowboy mentality. Um, and then what comes to a question that I wanted to ask you, Mike? Hey, can I add, is, add this real quick? I just go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. It brings right into Rosalie again, and it's kind of how I keep strong every time I get down. When I first met Rosalie, she said, Mike, I'm really honored that you're pulled so strongly to help protect these sacred animals, the buffalo, but I come from a nation that calls itself Tatanko Oyate, and um, we call ourselves the Buffalo Nation. And these animals that you care so much about and, and love so much are not animals to me and my people. They're our relatives, and that's how sacred they are. Thank you for saying that. It's very true. And and the things I was going to ask you is that how has COVID affected you and your surroundings? Talk to us about that. Well, we um, the last year we didn't accept any volunteers at all, and so we just basically had our staff and kind of isolated amongst ourselves. This year we started accepting volunteers, and we did have one minor outbreak but we were able to isolate and, and pick the two people that got it out away from everybody and it didn't spread around camp. So um, we weathered it pretty well, but, you know, everybody's had family relatives pass. And, I mean, it's just it's another war on the people, but I think it might be a war where the animals are trying to tell us, we've had enough of your ways, you know. We, we want you to change your ways and live healthier, you know. But it's sad. It's sad to see what it's done to a lot of people. No, if you could ask somebody, or if you can, if you imagine this crowd in front of you, and in which you wanted to share today in this conversation, what would you like to share to the public as far as the, the need and the urgency of certain matters? Talk to us, please. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Mike Meese, co-founder of the Buffalo Field Campaign on protecting the buffalo relations, the last remaining genetically pure herd in the state of Montana and Yellowstone National Park. And now back to the interview here on American Indian Airwaves. Well, my biggest concern is, is the, the children's future. I mean, the way we pay no heed, really, and barely admit that global warming is a problem. I've been saying through this COVID epidemic, if we would put half the energy that we put into this COVID into solving the global warming problem, then I think, you know, we can maybe make some change. But the thing of it is, in today's world, we all know everything's kind of going wrong, and, and we all have an issue that's dear to our heart. And, and and we know we can make a difference, you know. Like I, I've always said, I'm nobody special. Anyone has the power within them to create change. You just got to want to do it. And, you know, so I just ask people, follow your heart. Listen to what you're concerned about, what bugs you, and, and get out and make a difference because our government isn't going to change. Things isn't, aren't just going to turn around unless we demand it and make sure it happens. So... Be the change you want to see and find your passion and get out and pursue it. And don't ever, ever, ever let anyone tell you you can't do it because you have that power within you all. Mike, I wanted to ask your thoughts, perhaps in um, a sense of twisted irony, if you will. 
and coming back to the Yellowstone National Park. This year marks the quote-unquote 150th anniversary, right, of the park being open. And as part of its reopening is the inclusion of in indigenous peoples in the park's history. But I was wondering, maybe you could speak to that in relationship to its quote-unquote management of the Buffalo relations. Well, I look at it in in this perspective, like, you know, um, when they found the last 23 buffalo that they thought were the last of all the herds of 30 to 60 million in what's now called Pelican Valley, Mm -hmm. first they sent out the U.S. Cavalry to make sure the poachers didn't do it, didn't kill them off. Then they, a a year and a half later, they established our first national park, Yellowstone National Park, and it was originally earmarked to be finally a, a final home for these buffalo where they'd be safe. And here we are, you know, because this plan started 25 years ago. Um, here we were 130 years later killing these same buffalo that everyone fought so hard to make sure existed for the same basic idealism for the holy cow, I always refer to it. And, you know, as far as native culture, uh, James always points this out to me, you can go anywhere around here and see, oh, the old Nest Purse Trail, the old, you know, and there's a few signs here and there, but there's no historical perspective, and there's really hasn't been. Rosalie tried to get tribal consultation, and, and it was a joke what they offered. And so hopefully this is a step in, in reuniting these sacred lands that meant so much to so many tribes. I think they said at least 23 to 26 tribes have spiritual connections in many different ways to this land here. And, you know, hopefully this is going to open the door and and make them be a little more conscious of whose land or, you know, where, where this land was taken from. For our listeners, what would you like people to do? What can people do to help? Most you can go to our website, which is www.buffalofieldcampaign.org, and there's plenty of ways that you can sign up for our weekly updates that will be sent to your email every week um, telling you what's been going on, what actions we're taking that week, what directions we're doing. Um, I'd also encourage people to come out here and volunteer with us. There's a, a form that you just go on and um, click and there's a little application to fill out and it only costs you to get here and to go home and we'll pay for your food come pick you up at the airport or bus station whichever way you come and um, feed clothe and house you for as long as you're here and um, then I think you know my big thing is so the whole reason I think this has been going on even all these years is people still don't know about it so you know as I like to say spread the word to save the heard tell five friends what's going on tell them how they can help and you know just pass the word on and and keep it keep it in people's conversations because you know to me those buffalo hold a hold a truth that the world needs to know about and 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 needs to to be concerned and, and and know that they have worth just like all of us have worth and and just you know, the other thing, obviously, is find your passion and get involved and do something, you know, because now is not the time to be idle. Thank you. Definitely, especially when there's uh, 
on this uh, worldwide uh, war situation, Ukraine and Russia and the United States and the corporations right. and transnational corporations, so on and so forth, that they kind of distract away from what we need to do in our general area. And one of the right. things about what Southern California is so significant, and as well as California, that is tied also to, to um, that area. And I'm, I'm visiting right now your Buffalo Field Campaign office store, or your official store, and you have some exciting things that to offer that people can. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's beautiful. I don't know how you do it, but, you know, some exciting uh, uh, T-shirts and calendar, and I won't go into this because it's not a, this is not a, um, a program in order to um, talk about your products. But say it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> you know, except it's beautiful. And you have music, gift items, coffee. <coughs> Um, stickers, T-shirts, and I love this one. This one, and uh, I have it uh, on my water bottle, and it is. It says, "We are Buffalo. We go as we please," or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and everybody says, "Where'd you get that?" I'm going, "We'll go to the Buffalo Field Campaign." You know, uh, we want to support these people because I think one of the things, especially everybody's talking about the war distraction, and I think we need to understand why war is created. But one of the things is that it was always a war against animals, always yeah. a war against our relatives. It's just like the Buffalo native people has always been exterminated. It's kind of like collateral damage, you might say. And that, you know, is, is some of the things that na- many native indigenous nations around the surrounding area that, you're, that you said they're involved with in those things. Don't just look at it as a sense of, oh, we just want to protect a little buffalo because they're cute or they're, you know, they're right. left. But yet the fact that you stated and what Larry's question came up, and that is it's a way of life for Native people. Yeah. It's like when they kill a buffalo, that's going to talk about Rosalie's son, is about it hurts. Yeah. It hurts in the sense of, of you're killing a relative. It's like, you know, just like I heard today, and one of the one of the protests and protests for peace and against the war is that many women and children and men are being killed by the bombs and whatnot in Ukraine. At the same time, this stuff is happening real in real time in real life. What you said, the killing of the buffalo, and something that needs to be stopped. And that's why I think this interview is so important because of the fact that you can give your money to A, a Y, and Z, whatever the case may be. But yet this, this particular Buffalo Phil campaign it is a very much a life and death campaign for the Buffalo. And I think this is one of the things that I wanted to get across by interviewing Mike. Would you not say? Yeah, well, thank you so much. And, you know, as long as we live in a world where 1% of the people own 99% of the financial wealth, how can our world exist and function any normality, you know? And if we're going to allow these 1% to dictate the way we walk, top, keep, sleep, drink, and think, then um, we're going to keep running into these problems. So break out of the box, be your own person, find your passion, and make a difference in this world. And that was Mike Meese, co-founder of the Buffalo Field Campaign. We were speaking on protecting the Buffalo relations as Yellowstone National Park in announcing its 150th anniversary is considering a new bison management program that could result in the declining population of the last remaining genetically pure 
bison relatives and how the Montana cattle industry is also strategically working to eliminate the bison relations. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. An education graduation song by the Porcupine Singers off the album Songs of Honoring Lakota Classics, Past and Present, Volume 1, here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we turn to Los Angeles County, California, as we learn of a new exciting public educational pipeline program for Indigenous and Native American students throughout the Los Angeles County region. I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Shannon Rivers from the Akmer Otham Nation. He is Director of Programming for Indigenous LA, American Indian Resurgence Initiative, Native Ways to College. This is the state of education in Los Angeles County, California, with this brand new pipeline program for Native American Indigenous students and parents. Well, thank you, Larry, and thank you for having me. The American Indian Resurgence Initiative, Native Ways to College, is a program that is designed to support Native American students plan, prepare, and pursue pathways to college. And by that, we um, partner up with our service providers here in Los Angeles County. And talk about what that looks like in terms of partnerships and and what that means for Native students and, and parents throughout Los Angeles County. So before we do that, Larry, I, I want to talk a little bit about why, why the program was initiated. From our understanding is that there are about 140 and 270,000 Native Americans uh, live in Los Angeles County. We know that Los Angeles was one of the bigger populations of Native Americans throughout the United States. With that, LAUSD has been telling us that they only have 200 Native American students. We know that that number is probably higher. And why it is important for us to start this program or why it's important to have the Native Ways to College initiative, the AIR initiative, is that there's a gap. There's an educational gap between Native Americans and um, students who have been been left out of this these programmings that are provided by our service providers. The partners are uh, we have about a, a list of about seven of them, but I'll give you a couple of them. They are programs and organizations that have been focused here in LA County for, for a number of years. Uh, one is the um, 
United American Indian Involvement, uh, UCLA American Indian Studies Program, uh, Native American Vote Project, California Native Vote Project, and the Indigenous Circle of Wellness Program. So all these partners that we have are then basically designing their programs to support and to enhance Native and provide Native American students with programming for a gateway or pathway to college. But the goal for us is to empower self-determination with Los Angeles County Native American middle and high school age students Mm -hmm. and their families, of course, to have higher quality, cultural relevant educational choices and services that will cultivate into living the indigenous education uh, ecosystem. We want to support their identities, their uniqueness of who they are, their histories, their cultures, and their traditions. Uh, So our job is to help with the service providers to fund these programs and to help them with navigate not only this high school systems uh, and through LAUSD and through the charter schools, but to navigate them toward indigenous relevant uh, cultural educational programming. Touch on that notion of uh, relevant cultural educational programming, uh, because I'm sure as both of us know, when it comes to the public school systems and, and California state standards for public schools that indigenous peoples have historically and for generations been left out. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that the numbers, right? We right. know that uh, there are about 140 to 170,000 Native Americans, about 2, two million Mixtec and Zopotec people coming from the South. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Shannon Rivers, Director of Programming for Indigenous LA, American Indian Resurgence Initiative, Native Ways to College, on a brand new pipeline program for Native American Indigenous students from public school to college in Los Angeles County, California. And now back to the interview. Uh, So Indigenous peoples are left out not only of the educational system, but they're left out of the curriculum. We know that Los Angeles, for those of us that do know, is that part of the Tongva Chumash territory. Uh, But we also know that there are other many nations and tribes that live here in Los Angeles right. County, Cherokee, Apache, Navajo, uh, indigenous peoples from Central and South America. But if you go through the high school curriculum, it is rare that when we, we talk about these uh, historical uh, narratives that have uh, or are intended to teach about or rarely teach about indigenous mm-hmm. cultures and traditions. And mm-hmm. we see that throughout the LAUSD system. We see that throughout uh, some of these uh, middle and elementary school uh, curricula. So we see this gap constantly. And what that means then is that there's this, not only this educational gap, but there's this, this cultural and uh, indigenous erasure that is going on within the school systems. Not just LA. I don't want to just focus on Los Angeles, but I want to focus, but because we're here, I want to say that that is happening throughout the country. And then uh, the idea when we talk about indigenous peoples is that as a county, Los Angeles County has the largest indigenous population. And as I maybe put that into conversation with the program and how much of a, a necessity this program is, given how large the indigenous population is throughout the area. So when we talk about the gap, it's, you know, the the gap itself is mm-hmm. that that when we look at Native people that either have mm-hmm. came here 
in the 1940s or 50s, eventually they had families and they had children. And some of these programs that developed throughout Los Angeles history, the Southern California Indian Center, United American Indian Involvement, they were programs designed to support and help financially, uh, emotionally, and spiritually and culturally Native people that moved here. Mm-hmm. But when what happened to their children? Well, their children were integrated into some of these schools. And so when we talk about the numbers, and I question the numbers that LAUSD has, about 200 Native, 200 native students, mm-hmm. uh, and I question that only because if we have one of the largest population of Native American families that live here, where are these students at? Where are the Native American students at? Where are the indigenous students? And if you look at uh, the 506 form or the eligibility form, most people, most families, most Mm -hmm. Native American families will mark Native American, but the majority will not mark, uh, they will mark Mexican or Hispanic or other uh, and we lose those numbers. And so the, the critical thing is is that we need to identify uh, Native American students. We need the families to identify their, their children that are in high schools so that we can get some of these services to them. And one of those services, for example, is, is based out of the Tataviam, uh, the San Fernando, uh, Fernando Tataviam um, Band of Mission Indians. They have a program, that's, it's a camp, they have youth camps, they have uh, naturalist camps, uh, environmental camps, sciences, ceremony camps. So these things touch base, not only a connection that, that creates or that it pushes the children back into understanding who they are or guides them into the, who they are, but it says, listen, we're indigenous peoples who have a relationship to land, to territory, and to understand the ecosystem on a science level. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you imagine how wonderful that something like that of a program might be? Uh, with the the California Native, Native Vote Project, it's mm-hmm. about leadership programs, uh, political science in school. Say, for example, one of our kids wants to get into the science field or the political science field, and then they want to learn more about tribal governance. You know, these are programs that help build not only character, but again, are culturally relevant and based on indigenous pedagogy. So the numbers that that we question and the numbers that that I throw out there are still something that we're concerned with that we're not getting to. And part of the program and these programs that do exist is to highlight and to shine, put a spotlight on these programs to say, listen, there are programs for Native American students. There are programs for Native American families. How do we get the word out? And your radio station and programs like yours are how we're doing that. So I'm listening to you in, in the program, and, and we're talking about uh, the larger ind- indigenous uh, urban population and self-determination. Walk our listeners through how to access this program and, and what that process would look like for indigenous uh, parents that are interested in getting their children enrolled in this uh, new program. So we ask that our parents and our families, uh, parents of Native American students, go to nw2c-la.org, nw2c-la.org. And so we ask them to, to go and to um, sign up and register how to apply. It's a pretty simple uh, landing page website uh, that walk them through the program. We ask them to uh, look at the program, to their designs, and, or what programs they're interested in whether it's the California Native Vote Project or the Tatavium or either the Indigenous Circle of Wellness, 
uh, we ask them to take a look at the programs and say and sign up and to register with us so that not only do we have a, a database of Native folks, but in the future we want to build a larger database that reaches out to Native American families when future programs are not only available through us, but other, other organizations are programming here in Los Angeles County. In here, you mentioned you know, targeting uh, middle schoolers and, and high schoolers, and talk about the importance of having this uh, culturally-based gateway, if you will, from public schools to universities and colleges and, and what that looks like as part of this new initiative. Well, you know, there's always been challenges for Native American students to enroll uh, into colleges or um, higher in- educational institutions of learning. We know that about 74% of Native American students graduate high school on time. But we also know that Native Americans, uh, as much as 18%, below the average of graduate at a rate that is lower than the non-native or other ethnic groups you know there we also know that the attendance is low within native americans uh, community Uh, so for us it's important for them to not only register with us but to, to to understand that education uh despite um some of its setbacks the western education system, despite some of its setbacks, we know that it's important for our folks to get educated and to be uh, productive citizens of their community. We don't necessarily focus on this kind of capitalistic idea. We want these Native American children to uh, better understand this ecosystem of indigeneity. What does it mean to be Native? What does it mean to be Indigenous? And through these programming, we believe that we can we can help them focus on that. Yeah, one final uh, thought before we talk uh, again about the contact information. But I I know when I talk to other community members that run uh, programs and organizations that provide different kinds of services, is that there's always this lack of. Um, resources or or people that can work with indigenous peoples that have that kind of uh, cultural sensitivity sensitivity training if you will or you know have worked with indigenous people so I was wondering if you maybe could talk to that and, and how this program addresses that where the public school systems and even colleges and universities historically have failed at that. Well, thank you for that question, and I and I and I. The best way that I can answer that, Larry, is that we asked our partners specifically. We searched out partners that were specifically Native American or Indigenous-based programming or partners, um, and all of them have worked within the Native community for sometimes decades that uh, bring that kind of those teachings, those well-rounded Native American structures that are uh, indigenous-based that help them kind of navigate these waters. And so we understand that that a lot of times uh, Native Americans go to programming or or get involved in uh, other organizations, and there's no cultural sensitivity. There's no understanding of indigenous ways of life, uh, their teachings or their traditions. And so all of our partners are vetted. And so Every partner that we have under the NW2C uh, initiative is uh, indigenous or native-based um, uh, organizations. 
And for our listeners that are listening, uh, final thoughts and again, contact information or website information to provide our listeners that are interested in this new initiative. Again, go to our website at nw2c-la.org. You can uh, email or contact me there. Uh, we have um, my my phone number and my email is on the website, uh, and we ask that you guys, uh, that the audience, the listening audience, uh, visit our website, uh, take a look at it, uh, and then we can provide uh, programming and services. If you have any other questions, call me. Uh, we, again, we want to make sure that we're providing these services for uh, to Native Americans and Indigenous uh, students uh, to obtain higher education. But not only that, but to live a better, constructed, uh, a better life that uh, focuses on indigenous peoples and their uh, way of life and their thinking. So thank you, Larry. The moment of silence is over. And that was Shannon Rivers from the Akmer Autum Nation. He's director of programming for Indigenous LA American Indian Resurgence Initiative, Native Ways to College, a new pipeline program for Native American Indigenous students in the public education system in Los Angeles County, California. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Mike Meese and Shannon Rivers. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, the Porcupine Singers, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.